Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 156, where in a moment we chat life insurance for the over 60s with guest expert Catherine Knowles, Managing Director of Cura Financial Services. That's in just a sec, as I say, but please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programmes today, we featured loads of stuff, mortgages, investing, wills and powers of attorney and heaps more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last time we discussed Income Protection Awareness Week. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get us there. As I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And then that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis, and stepping in for Phil today, one of his colleagues from Phil Anderson Financial Services, Laura Stephen. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, welcome to Catherine, MD of Cura Financial Services. In a moment, we'll get stuck into a, a short topic for the episode, uh, life insurance for the over 60s. But first, uh, Catherine, maybe you can fill us in on your own career background, a sort of then to now, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think as with a lot of people in the finance world, and especially in the insurance world, I didn't go to university and things like that and think, I'm going to go into insurance. It just kind of happened. And it just ended up being my background's business and business management and things like that. So I um, it was around 2010 and at uni, started working in an insurance broker and really very much in what's known as the protection insurance space. So I think what's quite interesting is that a lot of people don't realize is that there's kind of like there's two departments of insurance. You have general insurance, and then you have protection insurance and they work very, very differently and they are very complicated each area in their own right. So I work just in the protection insurance space and it was something that was really good. Me and my husband were working at the company. The company owner at the time basically said, right, I'm off. I'm going to go live in Cyprus and retire. So everybody was facing redundancy, basically. So we decided to set up our own business in Cura and take everyone on, take on all the clients, everything like that, and then just build ourselves up. And we really known as a specialist now, especially for helping people in the protection insurance space, which just to be clear for anyone, because I know I'm talking jargon already, so I do apologize. <laughs> that is things like life insurance, critical illness cover, income protection. There can be some other things as well. And there's lots of ways they can be set up, but let's just take it as those three headings, if that makes sense. And we're really known as being specialists in that area and very much so for people who've maybe got something in their application that makes it a little bit trickier to get the insurance in the first place. And and that's about a really quick rundown, I think, hopefully. So what is involved in your role at Cura, Catherine? So I'm a business owner here, one of the managing directors. So pretty much everything and anything goes by me. So I do a lot of our marketing. I look after our compliance, but obviously a big part of my role as well is doing advice. But I very much, I'm quite fluid because I have to move around different places depending upon obviously if people are on holiday or different needs as to different things and different times of the year, you have to do different things. But essentially, probably my key thing that people would know me for is um, being an advisor. So I advise, and again, going to go a little bit jargony, so forgive me, but I advise, and I say, in the, uh, the income protection, life insurance, critical illness cover space, and I do that for people personally. So that is when you are arranging it for yourself, paying for yourself. I do it for businesses. I There's a couple of ways to do it for businesses, and I work in all the areas for that, and I do it in the UK and internationally too. So pretty much 
I just do a bit about everything and I do training as well. So as well as having curious, everyone thinks I'm probably nuts for this. Um, but I have two other firms as well. Um, so one of them is a training consultancy for other advisors to help them to be able to, to do protection advice in a better way. And then another one at the moment is just sort of like in terms of like, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a brand new thing. It's very exciting. We've got a new, our client management system is completely personally bespoke by us. And we're going to start offering that out to people as well to see if they want to use that for their clients it's all exciting very very new wow and on top of all of that you have your own podcast as well Catherine I understand where, <laughs> where, where, I don't know when you're recording this overnight <laughs> you know, we're always interested in, in people who have their own show because that's basically direct competition for us so we do everything in our power to crush the opposite no I'm kidding yeah um, t- tell us tell us <laughs> tell us a bit about your podcast yeah, so it's the Practical Protection Podcast, because just to labour the point again, I work in protection kind of thing. And basically, it, it is for a mix of different people. And there's there's a lot of it is kind of every other week is a little bit of industry commentary at times. But then in between those, what we do is we deep dive, especially now I've seen specialists in risk areas. So like we've done um, our most recent one that will be going out soon is we've done a deep dive into expats wanting insurance and getting advice from a UK advisor. So we really go into sorry, well, what are the difficulties that we can see? What are the residency complications? What kind of things do I need to ask as an advisor and know as an advisor? But then we'll go into other stuff as well. So we do quite a lot on medical conditions so things like lupus mental health diabetes so we're saying in there so like right if you are coming to an advisor if you want insurance these are all the questions that we're going to be asking so it's it's client facing it's for charities it's also for other advisors just to to really help them improve the way that they speak to their clients and try and get the best result first time round because unfortunately we do have times where people are told that they can't have the insurance or that they're told it's going to be a silly price and sometimes it is rare occasions where that is the case but, you know, a lot of the time it is just knowing the market It's being able to ask all those questions at the start and getting people to the right insurer first time round. So getting back to the topic, why would someone need life insurance aged 60 plus? There is a lot of reasons. <laughs> I have to say there's a phenomenal amount of reasons. And in some ways it can be different to people who are younger, but in some ways it can be just the same. So you might have dependent children at age 60. You know, there's no reason why you wouldn't necessarily have a child. And when we say dependent children, we're, we're generally, I mean, obviously it can change it for everyone's point of view, but it can be age up to age 21, 25. Some people say age 30, but it's not just that. You might actually have a, a child who is an adult who still needs you for their needs. It could be that they have some kind of vulnerability or some health condition. So we need to be thinking about that. We need to be thinking, about inheritance tax potentially so if you're going above certain levels we need to really be considering what we want to do we want to kind of get that locked in place the insurance as quickly as possible because the older you get the more expensive it gets and then it can be gift planning so a lot of people don't really understand about the whole point about what kind of gifts you can make to other people without potentially having tax implications. And, you know, it could be that, you know, we see people where parents are giving children deposits towards homes, which is is wonderful. You know, it's absolutely fantastic if you can do that. But unfortunately, a lot of the time with that amount of money that's there, you, you're going to get in, there's going to be gift tax potentially if that person passes away in the first seven years. And, you know, that's that's something that people just don't 
don't realise, and it's because we don't have financial planning just talked about everywhere. I'm really an advocate on getting it into like schools and things like that and teaching people. Obviously, gift planning is probably a bit intense to go in with schools, but to just at least start getting the mindset there that we need to talk about things. But the big thing as well that we're seeing um, with people who are over 60 is things like equity release mortgages. Mm which again, really can be really, really useful for some people. And I think, you know, with anything like that, you know, it's so important to make sure you're getting advice and get you're getting really clear advice because you hear stories of people taking up far much more out of the property than they actually needed to. And ultimately, no matter what, what you ideally, if you're doing equity release mortgage, you want to look at that and go, but at the same point, instead of potentially losing all of this value, can we put a bit of insurance in place so that eventually when something does happen, that the family won't just sort of like lose potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds? It's going to come in there from an insurance policy and give them back what they've what they've potentially lost. And there's even more things. So it's funny you say that. I just sat my equity release exam last week and passed oh. it. So Oh, well done. It's, it's a new string to my bow, so... Absolutely. Well, I have to say, because I do protection insurance, I have no knowledge of any of that. So you are far more knowledgeable in that than me and everything. I don't know. (laughs) No, no, you absolutely will be. But from the protection side, that's what's really important is just having somebody there to go, yes, you can do this. Yes, we could leave it. We don't need to do it. But sometimes for not really that much money, we can put something in place that just means that your family will be really financially secure if anything happens. So what options are there out there for over six days for insurance? There is a lot of options and what you ideally you want to be looking at is what's known as term insurance or term assurance, depending upon who wants to use the technical words. But basically, that just means life insurance and it's going to last for as long as you want it to. Now, you could be going to... I don't know, let's say if there was a mortgage, it's even not an equity release mortgage. Sometimes we're getting mortgages just being set up for people well into their 70s now. So you might just want it, I don't know, 16 years to take you to the end of the mortgage. It might be that there is something whether, you know, if we've got an issue like inheritance tax or gift or anything like that, maybe even funeral cover, we want to do it as what's known as whole of life. So that is just going to keep going and going and going until you do pass away. But then it gets really complicated because sometimes that's just not affordable for people. The, the, the need is there, but they might just not have the money. So maybe we need to go until age 90 or until age 95. And it's there's always risks. There's pros and cons for doing it so many different ways. But I think a really key thing for people as well is just, and I, I did a blog recently about life insurance for over 60s. And a really key thing for me is to make sure that you choose a route that really suits you. So when you're over 60, speaking to an advisor is a really good idea because you want to make sure that you are getting the right approach. You can do things yourself. At certain ages, you probably really will need an advisor because insurers get to the point where they say, well, actually, we're not prepared to insure you now because you have reached that age you know once you're starting to get into your 80s it becomes a lot trickier to actually even just get this insurance set up and what can be incredibly incredibly I'm just I'm trying to think of the right word for it now um, insulting that's it is that you will find that some places once especially once you're starting to reach the age of 70 and over that they want you to sign forms to say that you're mentally sound to be able to be doing financial advice and it is to do with vulnerability obviously in in the a a good advisor who is being regulated and everything like that they work by regulatory standards and we do need to really consider client vulnerability we do need to consider what's known now as consumer duty to make sure that we're taking everybody in their best interest but ultimately it's it's quite difficult because you do sometimes get that tick box of are you this age does that mean you're vulnerable but, you know, to me, that's it's it's really hard, something like that, because you can have people in their 70s, 80s who are massively switched on. And then you can have people in their 30s who just have no clue. 
you know, so it's it's really, really tricky. So ideally, we want term insurance. So that's where we've got like a, a length of time or it's going to be whole of life. But for some people, they might start looking at things like over 50s cover. There's a really, really big debate about the value of over 50s cover. And I know that there's plenty of sort of like pieces done in it, like a I was going to say the big newspapers and things like that about how they're the horrible things. You should never take them out, everything like that. But you get a pen. You get, you sometimes get a pen. (laughs) Yeah, a voucher sometimes as well. (laughs) You might do, you might well do. So it can be worth it, you know, but it's, it's one of those tricky ones that it can be a really, really important sometimes to get something like that. So I I can give an example if we have time. Sure. That's okay. So as an example, Let's take somebody who really needs some insurance, some life insurance in place. You know, they, they really, really do from an advice point of view. And we're looking on the standard market. We're even looking potentially at specialists, but we can't get them insurance on that kind of mainstream market. Let's say because as an, as an example, and because they've maybe had bowel cancer in the last couple of years. And it's going to be too expensive. It is just phenomenal. It's so out of budget that they, you know, even as an advisor, you'd look at it and go, just put some money in a bank, you know, don't pay that somewhere kind of thing. And you will find that with over 50s cover that they'll have what's known as this kind of, it's called moratorium period. So just to explain that, it basically means anywhere between six months and two years, they say, if you pass away during this period of time due to an existing condition, we won't pay out, but we we will fund you premiums. That's what they generally do. They refund the premiums and usually give a bit more back. And if it's after that time, then we'll we'll pay out for any reason. Now, assuming that this person is no longer under treatment, they're completely outside of everything, then they have maybe, maybe six months to two years, probably in that situation more towards two years to wait until it covers any situation versus just not having anything. And so it's it's a real tricky, complex area. And that's why advisors can really help people because we sort of like, as you all know, Laura, it's, it's going through all the pros and cons and giving all those different points of view and saying, we can do this. The negative of this is that way. We can do this. The negative and positive of that way is. So essentially, as an advisor, we're here to inform. And then it's the person's choice to just make sure that they feel that really comfortable about what's happening. You, you sort of flagged up and, and got into health conditions there, Catherine. Is there anything else that, that someone who's over 60 who's considering life insurance needs to consider when it comes to specifically health conditions? Absolutely. So as we get older, the likelihood of conditions is more. Okay. So especially when we're starting to go into over 60s, we're probably going to see more people with heart attack strokes, maybe not even heart attacks, but maybe coronary artery disease where they need to have stents fitted. Sorry, because I'm, I'm very much into the medical space as well. So forgive me if I start really going off into it. There's so many things. There's Parkinson's that always stands out for me because my dad has Parkinson's. And a scary statistic actually is now that every two hours in the UK, someone is diagnosed with Parkinson's. It's an incredibly amount of people that are doing it. And it's not to say that we can't get insurance when these conditions are there. It's just that it is usually cheaper. There's usually more options if we get the insurance beforehand. But we just need to be conscious that if there is something there, it means that some insurers might not be the right choice. Other ones could be better. It might not be that we're going to get the basic premium. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be silly money. It can be silly money. There's no there's no point denying that, but it doesn't have to be necessarily silly money. So it's, but it's always worth asking. And another one that really stands out is diabetes, type 2 diabetes especially, because 
it is kind of seen a little bit part and parcel that as we get older, at some point, we'll probably start to develop type 2 diabetes. Our pancreas stops working as well once we get to certain ages. And it's really important for people to know that pre-diabetes is just as important to tell the insurer about as diabetes. It will come up in a number of different names. It'll be called pre-diabetes. It'll be called raised blood sugar. It'll be called impaired glucose tolerance. All of them mean pre-diabetes. And it's just so essential because we don't want to risk not saying it because that's when we have the issues when insurance doesn't pay out. When you're looking at trying to secure life insurance, this is an age, as you say, because of so many different things that could impact it that means more people, I would imagine, possibly are declined life insurance. When you were talking there about, you know, with Parkinson's as a specific example, you said it might mean that some insurers will will not, you know, enter into a conversation with you about insurance. I'm guessing that over the the, the years you've built up a, a fairly quick recall for who doesn't deal with that kind of situation, who doesn't deal with that one, and so on and so forth. Yeah. When someone is rejected, there are obvious steps that they they presumably can take. Detail a couple of those for us, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I'm going to say is obviously come speak to me, but there are other (laughs) options than just speaking to me. There are a number of firms who work in this specialist space and a really good space if people are unsure is that our industry is kind of, there's an industry body called BIBA. So that's the British Insurers Brokers Association. So you can do a search for them and do a search for BIBA, find a broker or find a trusted broker. And what you'll do, we're listed on there as well. And you'll go on there and you'll say, well, what are you looking for? And you might say, well, I want some life insurance. It'll then bring up a list of people and advisors who have been vetted by Bieber to be specialists. I mean, you know, I've been, so I sit on the committee that kind of oversees it and my firm is in there. You have to provide proof. You can't just say, I'm one of these. You know, you have to provide extensive case studies to show that you can do stuff for people who are in a situation where there's maybe been a risk. So that's always a really good space to look at. Obviously, word of mouth as well. And I always like to say to people is that when you are declined something, Don't assume that's everywhere. I mean, it's awful. I was declined insurance. It was about 13 years ago now. And it's because at the time, the way that the industry works in terms of mental health, and I I didn't have any serious flags or anything mental health wise. I have generalized anxiety disorder and I've got declined by all but two insurers. And that's part of the reason why we made my company do what we do. But I have to say the reasons that I was declined insurance 13 years ago and not going to get a decline now because we've worked with insurers. We've made so many changes, so many developments. There's been incredible steps from the advisor community and the underwriters who sit in the insurers and make these decisions to really start to think, you know what, actually, if we're going to do this, we're probably going to be declining probably the majority of the population because everybody feels stressed at times. Everybody feels anxious at times. It's part of a normal human reaction to certain events. So don't assume that it is going to be a decline everywhere. But I do appreciate that. And I I know it, it is a horrible experience. It's a real kick in the teeth when it happens. But there are ways to do things. At the same point, I will say, let's say we've had someone with a heart attack. And I'll use a Parkinson's example as well. So someone's had a heart attack three days ago. It's very unlikely we're going to be able to get the life insurance that they want within three days later. Because any insurance that's going to be able to be done, if possible, is very like, well, I say, I'm going to say any insurance, the majority of insurances would be a decline because of the fact that it was so recent. They want to see the person's recovered and that they're okay long term. Parkinson's, my dad had a deep brain stimulation surgery. And so let's say someone has Parkinson's and they're due to have that surgery in two months time. 
they're not probably going to offer insurance to the majority of insurers because there's someone going under general anaesthetic. And just like anybody going under general anaesthetic, they will probably say, we'd like to wait. It isn't always the case, but most people, when they go for insurance, that is probably going to be what they're seeing. So just as soon as you can do, when you're looking at things, when you're trying to speak to an advisor, just have everything to hand. And I say to people, tell me everything, because then I'll know where to go or whether or not I need to say to you right at this moment, unfortunately, we need to wait. So do insurers have a good record of paying claims when people do actually have conditions that come about? Yeah, they have a phenomenal record of paying claims and people don't believe it. They don't see it. But again, I'm going to talk about my department in the protection insurance space. So general insurance, I can't comment on. I don't do that. So that's things like your motor, your travel insurance, things like that. So in my space, life insurance, critical illness, income protection, majority, especially in the life insurance and critical illness space, you're talking about 97%, 98% successful claim rates in insurances. The insurers are paying out hundreds of millions of pounds every year. And that is for people because someone has died. It's because someone has been diagnosed with a severe cancer or they've had a heart attack, a stroke, anything like that. It depends upon the policy you go for, obviously. But they do pay out a significant amount. There are times where they don't. And there are times that I've seen insurers not pay out and I have absolutely, let's put it, I've gone for them and said, you are paying this out. And it has paid out eventually because it does sometimes need a little bit of a push. And it's something that we sometimes do as a firm as well. Even if someone hasn't been, in a sense, our client, our customer, we will step in and help them through an, um, a claim process if, if it's something that really should have paid out. So there's a couple of things to just be aware of. So the times that insurance doesn't pay out, usually I will appreciate those times that people fall out of this. And I'm not saying that it's right perfect, but this is what usually happens. So in times when it doesn't pay out, that may be two, three percent where it doesn't. It's where potentially the person hasn't carried on paying their premiums. So the policy's actually ended and they've not realized. It can be that the policy has ended and in any case, and they just haven't realized that it's ended. It can be sometimes a family member suddenly finds a life insurance policy hidden in the documents and they just don't realize that the data is saying that it's actually over. The other problem that we can have is if people aren't truthful on the applications. And bear with me when I say this, because I'm not going to say that people are lying, but it's very easy to forget things medically. So when it's saying, have you been to the GP in the last three years for anything that you've not yet told us about? That's quite hard, actually, to remember sometimes. You know, have I been to the GP in the last three years? I don't know about anyone else, but since lockdown, especially, I'm still not recovered. I still think it's 2020. You know, I'm complete. I just have two years where I'm completely lost in terms of anything and everything. So there are times that, you know, they might not pay out if it's something really innocent. So as an ex- can I, again, do I have time to give examples? Yeah. I'm an yeah, example sure. person. Yeah. So as an example of an innocent one, let's say that somebody is estranged from their family and they have not seen them for 20 years. And you get to the family medical questions and it's saying, have anybody in the off family before the age of 65 had this, 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 this? And they say no, because they just don't know. Or they, they say, I don't know because I don't speak to them. But then there's a big family reunion in 20 years time and they realize, oh, actually, my dad did actually have a heart attack when he was 52 and I've not said on my application. That's probably going to be seen as innocent. And so the insurer would probably still uphold the policy and uphold a claim because you just wouldn't know. Same with if you were adopted, they will, if you're adopted, they will just say, it's fine. Don't worry. We'll just go ahead and just assume that there's nothing in the family history. But then you might, might, you know, find your adopted parents, things like that. Then we have it where somebody should have really said something and they didn't. So let's say, again, if we take life insurance, so maybe somebody's had 
some depression. And I have to say depression can potentially be accepted without any premium increases. It can be accepted completely standard at times. There are things though that can sometimes mean it's more expensive and they're maybe going to increase the premium a bit. So depression is just a really simple one in, in this context to be able to explain. So let's say somebody had depression and actually instead of paying £10 a month for their insurance, the insurer would have wanted them to pay £15 a month. And I hope I'm not going too technical, but let's just say that's that kind of thing. If they were to come to a claim, then the insurer would say, right, well, you should have ideally been paying us that much. So really you need to potentially say you might need to make up the premiums or what they might turn around and say is, well, actually, if you had been paying us, if we knew about this at £10 a month, we would have actually only insured you for this much. So we're going to reduce the claim. Hmm. And then you have things like deliberate where they just will not pay. So deliberate is where, let's take an example, someone's gone to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I think you might have cancer. We're going to need to do some tests. And the person's run home and tried to set up life insurance. That would be seen as deliberate non-disclosure. And, and the insurers work to those kinds of things. So that's when they don't pay out. And the reason I've gone so in-depth into that, if that's okay, is because I'm the person who looks at these things and goes, I'd be one of that 2%, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. If I if I took this out, I'm definitely one of that 2%. And that's what people want to hear. They want to know why isn't it going to be paying out. Mm. It gets a lot more complicated with critical illness cover, but I'm very, very conscious of time and that it might not be the easiest of things for me to go into that. Well, I, I'm I'm about to jump in with something that's completely off-piste. And this is a live example, and we'll get back to where we are in a minute, but this is a live example. So my wife was diagnosed with something called functional neurological disorder yes. in about 2013, somewhere around there. And it meant that she had to give up work. When it presents, it presents in a very similar fashion to multiple sclerosis. Now, functional neurological disorder is a relatively new find in terms of it being diagnosed in people. So when our life insurance kicked in, or when we took out our life insurance years and years and years ago, it wasn't a condition that was part of the life insurance situation. Yeah. So it would have been diagnosed back then as multiple sclerosis yeah. and not functional neurological disorder. So our insurer would not pay out on the fact that functional neurological disorder was what she had and not multiple sclerosis. Whereas we, we thought there was possibly a case considering back then that's what it had been called and it hadn't been discovered, if you like, as a as a thing, as a something that would be diagnosed. And that's not that's not debatable with an insurer apparently. So first of all, I can I just check, was it life insurance or life insurance and critical illness cover? Both. 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 Okay. So the critical illness cover brings in a little bit of a complication with it. Yeah. So so I think there's a couple of things to unpack there, which is, is really, really important, is that the insurer will go to, to strict rulings, in a sense, yeah. when it comes to these definitions and things like that. So did you have, as an example, did you have total permanent disability as part of your critical illness cover? I don't think we did, no. Right. Okay. So when you take out these policies, so like anything that happens after you've taken it out, assuming you weren't symptomatic or anything like that, then it's it's fine. So as an example, if I, I took out life insurance critical illness cover in 2016, if I'm diagnosed with cancer or diabetes going forward, obviously on the cancer, I would want to be making a claim um, on the critical illness cover, but it's not going to affect the policy that I have in place because the what happens within protection insurance is it is a contract that you control, not the insurer in a sense, is you control it because you say when it stops and starts in a sense, they're not allowed to just stop it at any point unless obviously there's been non-disclosure and stuff like that. But essentially, you're, they're looking at you on that day 
and going on the day you start it and going, this is you. We'll ensure you based upon you now. doesn't matter in the future, but right now, this is what we're insuring you on. And then you're looking backwards at the insurer and going, we're going to accept your contract as of today. And if you change your contract going forward, then I don't necessarily get that. There is an exception, but again, I'm going too technical with that. But generally, most insurers, if they change their contract in two years' time, as an existing client, you don't get the new contract. So it's really interesting that because you might find the insurer that you have now will pay a claim on their new contract for any neurological disorder, Mm. which would (laughs) encompass FND. Mm. But on FND, in, in insurance world, FND is relatively is new and, it, and new. i think you were saying it's, it's yeah, so it's, so new uh, yeah and now we've got a couple of insurers that are changing things to say any neurological condition so they're now instead of listing parkinson's alzheimer's dementia and a few other things they just bundle them all under one and part of the way to claim is that it's of a specified severity so inability to work would would fall into that mm. that is interesting isn't it it is but the original, a lot of the original ones would be saying things like multiple sclerosis and things like that. So it's obviously it's so unfortunate. I'm so sorry you faced that. The only thing I'd wondered is if you have total permanent disability and it had been on what's known as an own occupation definition. And I'm sorry for everyone because this is, again, we're going, <laughs> we're going depth in this. If you did have that, there could have been a potential to try down that route. So trying under... Unfortunately, trying under the multiple sclerosis route wouldn't have been possible, mm. but potentially pushing the total permanent disability could. Yeah, this is this is where Phil would chastise me for using the show for my own means. Um, oh, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Laura, carry on and, and ask about tax implications by all means. Yeah, so is there any tax implications to taking out life cover? There can be in the sense of payouts and sometimes premiums. So if we are talking about regular people who are just setting it up for themselves, and you know, I'm I'm choosing it myself and paying it for myself. Then, in terms of the premiums, you're just going to pay the premiums. Okay, you're not going to have what's known as the insurance premium tax added on top because that doesn't come into the protection side of things. So, what you see is what you're going to be paying. The implications can come if you set up life insurance and you don't put it into trust. And this is incredibly important for for everyone. It used to be a lot of the time people would say, I'll put it into what's known as this trust, which is a legal document that the insurer holds where you're saying, if I die, I trust this person to pay the money to this person that I want to get it. So often you'd maybe have like your partner. So if something happens to me, I trust my partner to pay the money to themselves if something happens to me. Or it might be, I trust my sister to, if something happens to me and my partner to pay this money for the benefit of my children. Lots and lots of different ways are set up and there's lots of different ones. So again, not only are we complicated because we need to find the right insurer based upon our risk and the right insurance type of policy, but we're going to be looking at trust documents, which are not fun, I have to say, for the best of times. <laughs> so we're going to, a lot of people would say, oh, well, you need to put it into trust to ring fence this money away from IHT and adding to your estate, which is absolutely true. But for the majority of people, they're not near that kind of level. So you say that to them, and they're just like, well, I don't care. And you're like, well, I can understand why you don't. But the thing is with the trust, it means that your family get the money quick and they'll get it much quicker than not. Because if you have to wait for probate, which is obviously when someone passes and the estate's being sorted, you could easily be two months at least. I think, you know, we're still on some backlogs where it's much, much longer than that. If it's in trust, provided that the claim is, and there's been no, 
I'd say there's been those suspicious circumstances around the person's death, then the claim should pay out within a matter of days. And that's so important. And as an advisor, with the majority of insurers, I can do that online as I'm doing the application and it's done and dusted there and then. So, so it's, you, it's no hardship to me. So what do you to need do. to claim for if, if someone passes away? What would you actually need? It's Well, you need to obviously get all the forms. You speak to the insurer or potentially your advisor who can step in and help and you would get the claim forms and you'd need the death certificate. When I say about suspicious circumstances, I'm meaning very, very, we did have a situation where there was someone in a very suspicious circumstance. And sometimes it basically, you need the coroner to have signed the death certificate to, to establish why the person has passed away. So as a very, very offshoot going backwards slightly, if it's okay. When we're talking about when insurance doesn't pay out, the majority of life insurance in the UK has an initial 12 month suicide exclusion on it. So it's really important for people to know that. And as well for people with mental health who've maybe struggled to get insurance, if they've had quite significant mental health history, they often don't realize that that's there. And that is why quite a lot of insurers are cautious if there has been a specific history because they're wondering, well, in 13 month time, could there be something happening? Are we potentially enabling something to happen if we set this policy up? Now, people can be phenomenally different. They can be decades away from anything like that. But that's why sometimes with some insurers, people can have a knockback that is really, really hard. But that's not to say all insurers. And I think that's really important. It's why it's so important to do research based upon individual circumstances. But yeah, so we're going to be going back to the trusts. We're putting things into trust wherever possible. There is a lot of, um, sort of like, you'll know there's a lot of things that we need to be very, very on top of when it comes to trusts. For people who are cohabiting, you really, really need to trust. I did a podcast with somebody who's an advisor, and she is absolutely wonderful. She's in our space. She was cohabiting. The policy wasn't in trust, and it meant that her partner's family got all the money rather than her. So even though the intention of it all was for her, it was taken and she couldn't get it back because legally, because they weren't married, it was the family who would receive it, not her. And it is so heartbreaking to hear stuff like that, which is why as a firm for myself, as far as I'm concerned, if you're taking out life insurance, you're getting a trust. You know, basically, we're not messing about with it. This is absolutely happening. And for most advisors, it's a very simple thing for them to be able to do online with just a little bit of extra information from yourself. And if you do have a policy and it isn't in trust, what I would say is call your insurer and say, I need these documents sending out to me. Or speak to an advisor and say, I need something like this because it is so, so important. And I have to say, a will doesn't come into into play with this kind of thing. It's important, obviously, a will. And it is important to kind of potentially have your insurances mentioned in it, but it won't act the same as the trust. It will. It doesn't help with that speedy payout and making sure exactly where it goes to. Every time. I sit in on this podcast every single time. There's a point in in the actual show where I think, okay, that's my that's my action point. I, <laughs> I need to go away and do this. Like maybe before the show even finishes. Um, <laughs> let's let's just summarise this because we, we, this is entitled "Life Insurance for the Over 60s. So this is a very basic question, and by way of summary, I guess Catherine is: if you are over sixty, how do you go about getting life insurance, and does the process differ that much at the specific age? It can potentially differ on how old you are. So say once you're starting to get into your 80s, you are starting to reduce the amount of insurers you can approach to a couple, basically. When you're in your 60s, 70s, there should be quite a few insurers that you can speak to. And, And there's three main routes to getting insurance. The first one is that you go on a price comparison site. 
which is, you know, if that suits you and it's, I think what's important is I'm obviously going to advocate for advice. I do think advice is better, especially when you're that age to make sure that you are choosing the right option and that you're not taking out something that you don't need at the same point. Cause that's also an issue is people taking things out when they don't actually need it. So you can do a price comparison site. If that works for you, fine. You know, if you've got anything that might come up in the medical questions that can sometimes cause it, it cause it to not work going through an online system, but just make sure you're answering everything as truthfully as you can do. And then again, you'd want to follow up with things like the trust, like I was just mentioning, because I don't believe you get that kind of thing through the comparison sites. You can then, there's a different type, a couple of different types of advisor routes. So obviously you have like the full financial advisors, like Phil Anderson and his team. You have me, who's just a protection advisor. But what's important is, is that we are advisors. So there's two different types of advisors. And we, the people here, <laughs> me and Laura, we are actual, in a sense, we are providing advice. And then you have what's also known as non-advised firms, which aren't always, it's not easy to distinguish between the two. So basically a non-advised firm, you'll say to them, I want £100,000 of life insurance for the next 20 years. And they will go and find that for you, but they won't tell you if that's right for you. And they won't tell you if it's going to meet your needs. And they, they, they literally cannot give you advice about what you're doing. They can tell you which insurer to use. They can set it all up. And again, that can work really well for a lot of people. But when you are, especially if you're thinking about, if we're doing things like equity release, if we're doing things like gift planning or IHT planning, anything like that, that's, that is where really we should have some advice coming in. That's when you do really, really, it's essential to have an advisor because, you know, you'd speak to me, you'd speak to Laura and you'd go, well, I want, you know, 100,000 over 20 years. And we'd go, oh, no, no, no. You know, okay, we can we can show you the price of that. But what you actually need is this type of policy, not the one you thought, because that one doesn't deliver what you want it to in the end. So you're going to be paying for something that's not going to reach your goal. You need to use this one. And actually, you need you know, it's actually you need 120,000, but only over 10 years. You know, it, it could be anything like that. So it's there's lots of routes. Find the route that's right for you. I do obviously believe that advice is the best way to go, because as well, another thing is if you use an advisor and they get it wrong, you or your family can tell them off. You know, at the end of it, at the end of it, it gives you an extra sort of like level of security. And we are obviously we're regulated as well by big, big financial institutions. So if we do do something wrong, then Again, we, we get told off not just by you, but by our regulators. And, and that they're pretty, can be pretty hefty tellings off. I'd mm. say. Mm, it can make firms close. You know, it's, yeah. it can be really, really intense. Catherine, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. If someone listening wants to get in touch specifically to discuss the idea of life insurance as a 60 something, what's the best way to go about that? Well, they can contact through our website, which is Cura Insurance. So that's C-U-R-A insurance.co.uk. I am on quite a lot of different things in terms of social media platforms. So if you search for my name, which is Catherine Knowles, possibly with the word Cura as well, you will find me in different places. Um, I often get messages on things like Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. So in LinkedIn, anything like that, just feel free to reach out. But if you go on the website, you can easily put it in just stuff like, I've got a bit of an inquiry. This is what my situation situation is can you help and then one of the advisors gets in touch fabulous thank you again for being a guest now as we always do on phil's show we take a look at how a subject matter has affected both phil's personal and professional life so laura in the absence of phil what do you want to focus on from today's show life insurance for the over 60s well professionally i've not really seen any over 60s come to me for advice on protection 
they tend to feel that they don't need it, I guess, because they're coming up to retirement age. Maybe they've got a really small mortgage and they think, well, it's it's fine. I don't need to cover that. So it's normally the under 60s that I would generally deal with. Personally, I've come across, my, my grandma passed away about two years ago in her 90s. And when we were going through all her paperwork, we found a whole life policy that she'd kept in place with, I can't remember who it was with, but she'd, she'd spoken about it and she, she paid, it was like two pounds a month, something really small. And she'd had it for years. And at the end of the day, it didn't pay out a lot. It was a couple of thousand, but it was enough to pay for her, for her funeral. And it paid out straight away. There was no issues there. So it, it was, you know, amazing that she'd kept this whole of life policy for so long. And it benefited us at the end of the day, because obviously it helped pay for some costs that we didn't have money otherwise, because we'd had to sell the house and other, you know, there's other yeah, assets sure. things you have to deal with, with solicitors, and you can't always have the money straight away. So yeah, personally, yeah, my uh, very clever switched on, 90-year-old grandma had, uh, had life insurance. So, yes. Um, Do you know that £2 a month bought her was peace of mind? And that, generally speaking, is priceless as you grow older, I suspect. Also in the podcast, a regular bit that we delve into is Phil's quote of the week. Uh, being a fan, as Phil is, of influential and motivational sayings and quotes. Uh, has Phil left you a little note of uh, a quote about life insurance for the over-60s, Laura? Yeah. Uh, so this is from Ken Hubbard. And the quote is, Fun is like life insurance. The older you get, the more it costs. <laughs> now, Phil is uh, very keen on trying to help you with your query. So if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if that's how you prefer it. Let's get on to this week's contact details in just a moment. I'll give it to you after this. This first one's from Tom, who says, Hi, Phil. I heard the Bank of England governor announced recently that he expected interest rates to rise another twice, and that would be the highest level they would reach. How can he be so certain of that? And does that mean the rates will fall again afterwards? <laughs> I don't know, does it? The only certainty is that nothing is certain. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going to happen just now. A year ago, experts thought that the rates would rise, but nobody anticipated the amount that they've risen by. People can only give opinions as to what they think is going to happen, but nothing's ever certain. You look at the war that's going on, you look at Brexit, you look at covid we didn't expect any of these things to happen. And that's made a huge impact on, on the economy, the rates, inflation, everything at the moment. So we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's great to say, yeah, maybe the rates will come down, but we just don't know. Okay. Sorry, we can't be more specific on that one, but that is the way right. of the world. Next up, here's one from Lisa and Rothis who says, Hi, Phil. I listen to your podcast every week. I'm not sure if you get much feedback or realise what a difference you make to the general public, but... I find it really helpful. And my son, Alistair, thinks you and John are very funny. Well, there's no accounting for taste, Lisa. Uh, he's approaching the time for work experience at his school and is interested in the idea of becoming a financial advisor. Is it something you'd recommend for a work experience placement? Yeah, I would definitely contact local firms if you are interested in financial advising. We've had uh, a couple of pupils in the past come in for work experience so it never hurts to ask. There's no harm in, in asking our parents going into, you know, if the kids are maybe a bit scared to, to go in. I know my kids are, are at that age now. Uh, my eldest's in fourth year. I wait to look at her exams. She doesn't have a clue what she wants to do. 
but yeah, a lot of our friends are interested in finance and things. So yeah, I mean, if if any of them would be interested in in uh, giving us a shout, I'm sure we could accommodate, and I'm sure other firms in the local area would would love to have um, folk help do filing and answer phones and just help around the office for free as well. I'll give it 15 minutes. You could be co-hosting this podcast with me next week. You never know. I would just say as well, before you get in touch with a question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a fair few topics so far and we might have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thank you for joining us for episode 156 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, or in this instance, Laura Stephen. Thank you once again to today's special guest, Catherine Knowles, Managing Director of Cura Financial Services. Now, if you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been talking about or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, or why not email Phil a question you can answer on a future show. His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question. And as I say, Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured, we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. Please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening.